Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6. So we'll be looking at the passage now. We've just finished verses 1 through 14 last week. This week we're going to start on verses 15 to 23. We're really we're going to look at this in two parts. So we're going to look at verses 15 through 19 this week and then 20 through 23 next. Well, in two weeks, sorry. I won't be here next week. But uh, so Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 15, Paul writes, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of, of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So like I said last week, we finished Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. And we finished it by looking at verses 12 through 14. That was the section we covered last week. And in that passage, we saw that uh, in order to break the dominion of sin in your life, we must do three things. First, we must, we must not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Second, we must, not present ourselves to, we must present ourselves to God and our members as instruments of righteousness. And finally, we must recognize that sin shall not have dominion over us. So if you think about what we, you know, what we said last week, this idea of not letting sin reign in your bodies because you have died to sin. We saw that earlier in the chapter. We have died to sin by our union with Christ. Our union with Christ, his death to sin was our death to sin. His resurrection to newness of life was our resurrection to newness of life. So as such, since we have died to sin through our union with Christ, we must not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. The reign of sin has been vanquished. The, 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 the reign and dominion of sin in our lives, that power has been broken in our lives. And as such, then, we must present our bodies, our members, so not just the whole, but the parts as well. We must present our bodies, then, to God and our members as tools or instruments, or as the, the actual word can mean, weapons of righteousness, not offering ourselves to sin. Because we need to recognize the fact that sin shall not have dominion over us. And then that section ended with Paul giving us the reason why sin is not the Lord of our lives. That's kind of what that word dominion means. It's the Lord of, you know, he is, sin lords over you. And the reason why is because we are not under law anymore. We are under grace. That's how he finishes the, the passage there. We are not under law, but under grace. Also in that uh, Last week, we took a brief excursion on sanctification in the gospel. We spoke of how the gospel is more than just the forgiveness of sins. 
uh, by the death and resurrection of Christ. It is that. We don't want to minimize that aspect of it, but it's more than that. It is more than that. We spoke briefly that the gospel really is a message of the coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is now breaking into this world. It is coming in to reclaim the territory that was usurped by the devil and his minions. So now this kingdom is here. The kingdom is here because the king is here. And this period that we currently live in between the advents, if you want to call it that, the first coming uh, when Jesus came 2,000 or so years ago and the second coming, which is yet to come, this time between the comings, this time between the advents is a time of overlap. It's an overlap in which the kingdom has been inaugurated, but has not been consummated. So the kingdom is here in a sense, in a spiritual sense, in the sense of uh, reclaiming people for the kingdom of God, renewing us in our spirits. But you could still look around the world. You still see that there's still a lot of sin and corruption in the world. So the kingdom is here, but not in its fullness. It has been inaugurated, but it hasn't been consummated. But the kingdom of God is breaking forth. And the salvation that it brings is the promise of making us citizens worthy or fit for the kingdom of God. So sin is a barrier for entering into the kingdom of God. And the salvation then has three primary processes. And we looked at these last week. Justification in which through our faith, the imputed righteousness of Christ or the righteous, the perfect righteousness of Christ is applied to us by faith or by grace through faith. And because of that, the, the, it, it brings the removal of the penalty of sin. So we've been declared innocent. We've been declared righteous in God's sight because of the righteousness of Christ that has been applied to us. Secondly, sanctification, which is what we're, where we're at now in Romans. Romans earlier in chapters 3 and 4 talks about justification. In chapters 6 and 7, we're talking about sanctification, in which is the removal of the power of sin. So we had the removal of the penalty of sin, now the removal of the power of sin. As, the, as we said, the dominion of sin has been broken. The power of sin in our lives has been broken. Now we are able to, by the help of the Spirit, by the enabling help of the Spirit, live lives of righteousness unto the Lord. And then to come is glorification. I think we see that a little bit in Romans 8, glorification, which is the removal of the presence of sin. Sin is finally removed from us and we are able to live lives of perfect righteousness unto the Lord. Now, before we get into the passage, I want to talk a little bit here about the concept of grace and licentiousness. So when I say licentiousness, I mean the sort of the idea that you're giving you're given liberty, you're given license to do whatever you want under the fact that we are under grace, because that's how this section opens up. So when Paul in verse 14 says, sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under law but you're under grace. And when he comes to verse 15, he anticipates a question that is going to be proposed to him, which is, then shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Since the law no longer has any pull over us, shall we then can we sin at all? Because we're under grace. So that's the idea of licentiousness. And as we'll see in a moment, Paul is using that rhetorical device we've talked about before, the rhetorical technique called the diatribe, in which he sort of uh, anticipates questions that will be brought up by something that he has said and goes to answer them. He cuts them off at the pass. 
And this question, again, like I said, is prompted by that phrase where he says, you are not under law, but under grace. Now, when we looked at the previous section, verses 1 through 14, we spoke a lot about antinomianism or this idea of a a philosophy that is anti-law or against the law. That's what antinomian means. Or the idea of easy believism, that all you need to do is just at one point in your life profess a faith in Jesus Christ, and then it doesn't matter what you do with your life as long as you can point to a period of time in your life where you prayed a prayer, made a confession, whatever. You're, you're golden. You've got the get-out-of-hell-free card and all that stuff. Or this idea of cheap grace. This is the one who says, like in verse uh, 1 of chapter 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's what the antinomian would say. Shall we continue living a life of sin so that grace may abound? Because you remember from chapter 5, Paul says, as sin abounded, grace abounded over, over it. It overabounded over our sin. So then the thought is, well, okay, because we like to sin and God likes to shower grace, let's just keep sinning. Let's continue to live a life of sin because then God will just continue pouring out grace over us. This is the person who thinks you can have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. So, you know, he could save me from sin and hell, but I could still live my life. I don't need to obey as long as I, like I said, as long as I've made that confession. And I can point to, you know, I wrote it in my Bible here. Whatever day or whatever year, I made this confession of faith. Now, the whole chapter here of Romans 6 pretty much smashes that notion into tiny little bits. But when you come to the question that Paul asks in, in verse 15, where he says, shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? You can almost see that question being asked by someone who sees grace as licentiousness. So, in other words, if you're preaching grace, 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 then someone may think, well, okay, I can, I can sin because God will show me grace. I'm fallible. I can't not, not sin. Okay, So God will show me, he'll be gracious to me. And it's kind of a, a licentiousness. So this this question can be asked, well, then, you know, I mean, shall we just sin because we're no longer under law but under grace? So this would be the flip side to the antinomian, the person who's against the law. This would be the legalist. And we looked at that a few weeks back, this sort of uh, contrast between legalism and antinomianism. The legalist, of course, is someone who wants to add to the law of God. Again, think of the Pharisees. So it wasn't enough that they had the Ten Commandments and the law that would that God gave to Moses on Sinai, they had to add extra traditions, extra rules to everything. They had over 600 laws on how to obey and observe the Sabbath, which, as Jesus would say, you you place a burden on your people to the point that they cannot keep the law. They cannot keep your traditions. And you make your traditions over the law. Now, I've said it before, I think the classic portrayal of the legalist and the antinomian is given to us by Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the man with two sons, really, because when you say the parable of the prodigal son, we know what it means, but it only puts the attention in the spotlight on the one son. It's really because the parable starts off. Jesus says a man had two sons. So it's really the parable of the man with two sons. Right. But we know that story. Right. The Younger son is the antinomian. He's the one who hates living under God's rules. He's the one who hates living under his father's house and his father's rules. And he's like, I want to get out of here. So can you please just cut me a check? Can you give me what what my share of the inheritance is so I can leave? 
Of course, in a sense, in that culture, what he was basically asking was, can you pretend, can I just pretend like you're dead so then you can liquidate one third of your estate and give it to me so I can go off and live my life any way I want? And of course, the father acquiesces to that. The legalist would be the older son, the one who was faithful, who worked in the field, who worked in the field all the time, who obeyed his father's commands. Yet when the younger son comes back and, and, and repents to his father, his father welcomes him back in with open arms. The older son is out there and he's pitching a little fit in the field. He won't come in and join the party. So the father has to go out to him too and says, look, son, why don't you come join the party? And he's like, well, you've never thrown me a party. You've never given me anything. You've never killed a fattened calf for me. I don't want to come into your silly little party because of your son. He doesn't even refer to his younger brother as his brother. He says, your son did this, this, and this, and this. You let him back in. That's the legalist. The legalist obeys not out of love, not out of any desire to serve God. He obeys because he feels that's what he has to do to earn merit. So the antinomian is the one who hates God's law and hates living by his rules. The legalist is the one who obeys God, but not out of love. He sees his service as a form of slavery. In fact, that's what the older son says. I says, I've slaved for you all these years, yet you've never thrown me a party. Both hate God, but for different reasons. So the legalist will hear Paul's explanation of the gospel. He will hear the teaching of you're not under law, but under grace. And he will then accuse Paul of being antinomian. <laughs> it's like, you know, you, you say, okay, well, you know, you're saying you're dead to the law. So you, you hate the law. You're antinomian. We'll get more into that in Romans 7. But if you remember what we said when we began looking at Romans 6, we said that the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to appear as legalism to the antinomian. And it's going to appear as antinomian to the legalist. In other words, the gospel is not going to, it's not going to make anybody happy in a, in a sense because you're going to have both sides, both errors are going to hate the gospel. Because the gospel is the cure for both legalism and antinomianism. It, to the legalist, it says you cannot earn salvation by keeping of the law. So your law keeping and your, your sort of trying to put burdens on the backs of other people to keep the law, that is legalism. That is not gospel. And of course, to the antinomians, like, if you're saved by grace through faith, you're not going to live your life like that. That's what Paul says earlier. He says, you, how shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? You, you've died to that. How can you continue to live in that life anymore? You've died to it. So the gospel is a cure for both legalism and antinomianism. Now, as we'll see as we come into this passage here, verses 15 to 23, Paul's going to use the analogy of slavery to describe our union with Christ. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Carl, slavery makes it sound like union with Christ is the most severe form of legalism. And you're right, that analogy does make it sound like legalism. But, it's my favorite word, right? But, <laughs> all analogies are in perfect comparisons, right? And Paul will even say that in verse 19, where he says, I speak in human terms. So the analogy of slavery can only be carried so far, just like any analogy can only be carried so far. If you carry an analogy too far, it eventually breaks down. Or as one of my seminary professors was fond of saying, analogies show us how things are similar and different. Okay? If it was always similar, then it wouldn't be an analogy anymore. It would be like a copy. 
All right. And analogies show us how things are similar and different. So if sanctification is freedom from the power of sin, as we said earlier, then one might think that freedom from sin is freedom to sin. And the use of the the analogy of slavery is going to speak the truth to that lie. So after finishing his argument in verses 1 through 14 by saying, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace, Paul, as we said, imagines another question from his imaginary interlocutor. The, the, The question that might be asked, which is, What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace. And of course, Paul says, certainly not. Or as the King James would say, God forbid. I always like that one better anyway. Now again, the question is very similar to the one that Paul anticipates in chapter 6, verse 1. Where the, you know, Paul asks the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if grace abounds to cover my sin, then the more I sin, the more grace abounds to cover over it. Therefore, a life of Continuing in sin or remaining in sin, perpetual sin, that's what the the phrase actually means, can perversely be seen to further God's plans. Of course, as we said, if you recall, when we looked at that verse, Paul answered by saying, how shall we who died to sin live any longer with it? In other words, by our union with Christ, we have died to sin, the old man, and we have died to the old way of life. But here in verse 15, the question isn't shall we continue in sin, but shall we even sin at all? It's just shall we sin? In other words, it's not the idea of a life of continual sin, but can we sin at all? Because we're not under law, but under grace. Is sin permissible? The thinking being that the law is seen as a guard against sin, and Paul is imagining a person pitting then the law and grace against one another. So since we're no longer under the law, then shall we sin because we're under grace? So it's not a matter of sinning to get more grace. Rather, it's a question of sinning because we already have grace. Now, again, as he does in six, chapter 6, verse 1, in other places, Paul answers with that emphatic negative. Certainly not. May it never be God forbid And after the strong negative, Paul again answers by appealing to what we know, where he says in verse 16, do you not know? And when he starts like that, he's basically saying something that we should know. (laughs) Do you not know this? This is a common truth here. And the, the truth that he is saying is, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey? You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So when Paul says, do you not know, as is his custom, he is about to tell us something that is common knowledge. And that common knowledge is this. When you present yourself as a slave to someone, you are required to obey that person. It's kind of self-explanatory, you would say. Here Paul introduces us to the analogy of slavery and how it describes a facet of the Christian life. Now we've seen this word slave before or servant It's the Greek word doulos before in Romans. Paul uses it of himself all the way back in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, where he calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, 
separate it to the gospel of God. So Paul himself refers uh, to himself as a slave or a bondservant, depending on how you want to translate that word. It does mean slave. But Paul looks at himself as a slave, as a servant, as someone who is low on the rung of society. Slaves were the lowest rung of Roman society. Of course, the word covers the whole range of servitude. It could be voluntary versus involuntary, a servile slave versus devoted bondsman. It could be a literal slave versus a figurative sense of the word here. Um, anyways, like I was saying, it was an interesting metaphor to use of the Christian life, particularly considering how rampant slavery was in the Roman Empire. Well, I mean, slavery is really rampant at any point in human history, but particularly in the, human, in the Roman Empire, uh, some estimates of the number of slaves they had in the Roman Empire by the end of the first century put it at around two or three million slaves in the Roman Empire by the end of the first century, or about 35 to 40 percent of Italy's population. Now, many of these slaves were such because they were the unfortunate recipients of being conquered by, by Rome. So if you're a, a, a conquer, if you're conquered by Rome, if you're a vassal nation of Rome, you were, most of the people were brought in as slave labor. Though there are some slaves who sold themselves to slavery as a form to pay off debts. That was a way to pay off a debt. If you couldn't pay off a debt, you would work, you would essentially work it off. Uh, so you could sell yourself into slavery. And that kind of answers your question a little bit, Mark. That was one way of presenting yourself as a slave because you have a debt to pay off. But we'll delve a little bit more into this analogy in the verses that lie ahead. But the point that Paul wants to drive home here with the slave analogy is that slaves obey. Whoever your master is, you are required to obey that person. That's a short definition of slavery, if you want to put it that way. And here, Paul only presents two options. There are two masters. Okay, We could serve sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, it's interesting because if you talk to an atheist, an atheist will believe they're free because they don't worship a god. The atheist is the one that's like, no, I, I do whatever I want. I, you know, I can live my life however I want. I don't bow down to any you know, fake imaginary guy in the sky kind of a thing. I'm free. I think I'm a free thinker. But in reality, everyone is a slave to something. That's what Paul's putting the point here. Two options, sin or obedience. You're a slave to something. And for Paul, the only two options, as I said, are sin or obedience. Furthermore, when Paul tells us that we have been freed from sin, Romans 6, 7, that doesn't mean we're freed to sin. The freedom that a Christian has is a freedom to obey God. Now, further note that Paul points out two outcomes from our two masters. You if you're a slave to sin, that leads to death. Or the phrase ace thanaton literally means into death. A slavery that, of sin that is into death. And a slavery of obedience to God that leads to or is into righteousness. So a slavery to sin means that sin is your master. The more you sin, uh, the more that sin will lead to death. As we'll see later in chapter uh, 6, verse 23, the wages you earn for that slavery to sin is death. 
Paul will say in verse 23. What you earn, what you work for, that's what you get, the wages. On the other hand, a slavery to obedience leads to righteousness. And that righteousness is not the imputed righteousness of Christ that we get by grace through faith. Because that is something that is, first of all, it's not ours. (laughs) It is given to us by grace through faith. It is imputed to us so that when God looks upon us, he sees us as righteous because by faith we are cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. But when he says here, obedience, that leads to righteousness. This is a practical righteousness or a moral righteousness. In other words, it is the fruit and the, the, the catalog of our life of, of thankful obedience that is pleasing to God. The more you recognize that you are a slave to obedience, the more you're obedient, the more fruit you bear, the more righteousness you build up more practical righteousness. Again, not to offer to God, look what I've done, but more of like, thank you, God, for everything you've done for me. I'm showing my love for you by being obedient because that's what the Bible says. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The commandments get boiled down to basically love of God, love of neighbor. That's how the Ten Commandments are summarized. When Jesus is asked, you know, what is the greatest commandment in the, of, of all of the commandments that the Jews follow? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two hang all of the law and the prophets. So now as you get to verse 17, Paul here expresses his gratitude that the Romans were no longer slaves to sin, but are now slaves to obedience, where he says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. So Paul's using this, he does this a lot, where he talks to people and he says, you were this, but now, thanks be to God, you're this. So you were a slave to sin, but, or yet, I would put but if I were translating, because I hate the word but, But you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. So Paul thanks God that though they were slaves to sin, they have now obeyed God. And this indicates that ultimately our salvation is a work from God, but God be thanked. He's not just throwing that phrase out as a, you know, just thank God. No, he's he's recognizing that God is the author of our salvation. He is the one who works it. He's the one who plans it. He's the one who carries it out. In fact, in Ephesians... Paul tells the Ephesian church that we were redeemed by God through Christ in Ephesians 1.7, where he says, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And that word redemption is a buying back. You know, we talked about, you know, if you remember S&H green stamps, you would collect these stamps and then you would redeem them to get something that is much cooler and much nicer than the silly stamps that you put in the book. So... So that's the idea of redeeming. The blood of Christ was paid to redeem us from sin. In a sense, if you think, again, if you carry this analogy of slavery out a little bit, we were on the slave market of sin. Christ, with his blood, bought us off the slave market of sin. We have been redeemed from our slavery to sin, and it's all of God's doing. So they were slaves of sin, but they obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. So having come from a life of obeying sin, now they obey from the heart. 
In other words, they, uh, it was a genuine obedience. It was a genuine faith that they had from the heart. They obeyed this form of doctrine. It's an interesting phrase, a form of doctrine. Uh, form here translates the word tupos, which is, it, we get the word type from it. Um, but basically, it's, it's like the shape you get when you make an impression in wax or something. You get the form of something or you get the shape of something. So that stamp or that impression that you get like when you try to seal a document or something, that's what the word type or form means. And teaching is the word didache, which means doctrine or teaching. And in fact, there's, it's interesting, there's an, in, there's an ancient collection of writings called the didache that the church followed for most of the ancient church period. And that word just comes right out of the Greek, just means doctrine, the, the didache. So when you put these words together, what Paul is saying is that the Roman Christians were obedient to sound doctrine. They were obedient to an organized form of teaching, not just random collection of facts. They, there was a form of teaching that was prevalent in the church. In other words, there was a theology, if you want to put it that way. They didn't just believe in faith. They didn't have faith in faith or belief in belief. But it was a, it was a teaching that had form. It had a shape. It had a purpose. So rather than submitting to the authority of sin, the Roman Christians had been delivered under the authority of sound doctrine. They were delivered. They were brought to it. And that's a passive word there. So like, you know, again, the passive tense means you are not the one acting. You were delivered. In other words, someone delivered you. The Romans were not the ones doing the delivering. And again, God through Christ delivered the Romans from bondage to sin to be under the authority of a organized form of Christian teaching. So now Paul comes out and tells them in verse 18 that you are now slaves of righteousness. So having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, we've said it already a couple times before, but freedom from sin is not freedom to sin. Okay? Freedom from sin is not freedom to sin. Now, of course, we are here in America, and we have this sense of freedom that means that we're autonomous. We think we're autonomous. The word autonomous means we are a law unto ourselves because we're Americans, right? You don't even say the A in America. You just say American. Red, white, and blue. You know, <laughs> there's no one going to be king over me. That's that's our mentality. Now, in in the grand scheme of geopolitics, it works. But in a sense of theology, we are not autonomous. We are not a law unto ourselves. No one, biblically speaking, is autonomous. As we said earlier, you're either serving sin or you're serving God. Now, as created. We were originally created to serve God. But when Adam rebelled and threw the world and humanity into sin, we ceased serving God and became rebels. We were rebellious people at that point. So when the Bible speaks of freedom and free from sin, it's not taking us from a state of bondage and slavery to sin into a state of autonomous freedom. We're not free to sin and then left to go on and take care of ourselves. Rather, it's a deliverance from those enslaving powers 
that would prevent human beings from becoming what God intended them to be. Another way to put it is you could say that freedom from sin is a freedom from the powers of this present evil age that we live in. Think of what Jesus says when he's arguing with the Pharisees in John 8, and he says to them in John 8, 32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And then in verse 36, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed, but not free to sin, (laughs) free to obey. Now, we spoke earlier about the paradox of calling union with Christ a form of slavery, and Paul is going to speak about it more in verse 19. But how can freedom be slavery? It seems paradoxical. It seems oxymoronic to put the two in the same phrase. But if you think about what Paul has said in the previous section, verses 1 through 14, we learn that we have died to sin. We have died to the powers of this age. We have died to the power and dominion of sin over our lives. That power has been broken. And now for the first time in our lives, the moment we became Christian, we were free now to serve God. We were free to obey God. We're free to live the life that we were originally created to live. The Westminster Shorter Catechism in its first question and answer asks, what is the chief end of man? It's a great question. What is the chief end of man? And the answer the catechism gives is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we were created to do. That was the purpose for which God created us. And now that we have been freed from sin, the power of sin has been broken in our lives. We are now free to do that. We're free now to live the way God created us to be. As a slave to sin, we couldn't do what we were originally designed to do. As a slave to sin, we were not glorifying God and we were certainly not enjoying him. Sin ruled and reigned in our lives. But now we're freed from that slavery. We can now serve God with an open heart. We can serve God with a grateful heart. We can serve God out of thanksgiving for all that he's done for us. It's interesting to note when you consider the history of God's people in the Old Testament particularly, our freedom from sin through the blood of Christ is kind of pictured in the freedom of the Israelites from their bondage in slavery in Egypt. When God delivered his people from Egypt, they were free so that they could worship and serve him. That's what God, through Moses, says to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. In fact, one of these days I plan on rewatching the great Charlton Heston Ten Commandments movie. But, you know, let my people go. You know, but, you know, he goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Why? So we can go wander in the wilderness and do whatever we want? No. So we can sacrifice to God. So we can worship God. That's why we want you to let our people go. So in verse 19, Paul goes on to say, how the weakness of this analogy of slavery. He says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. And here Paul admits he's speaking in human terms to his readers. In other words, the analogy of slavery is an accommodation to his readers. 
because of the weakness of their flesh, he says. In other words, that phrase, weakness of your flesh, is meant to convey the idea that as humans, particularly as fallen humans, we have a difficulty understanding spiritual truth. We're going to see that in the sermon this morning when John fin- or when Jesus finishes his conversation with Nicodemus. Nic- you know, he says something to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus gets, he says, when he says, you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus says, hears that and says, what, I need to enter into my mom's womb again? The weakness of our flesh. We hear spiritual truth. We don't interpret it correctly because of all the grids and filters that we have due to sin and our fallenness. That's what Paul says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The truths of Christianity, the truths of the faith seem as foolishness to the outsider because they are spiritually discerned. So the analogy with slavery, though imperfect, is a useful tool that Paul incorporates in order to communicate the truth of union with Christ. He uses it so he can communicate to them in terms that the people can understand. And the reason why the weakness of this analogy is because the comparison of the two slaveries is not an equal comparison. Our slavery to sin is a slavery of uncleanness, as Paul says here. It's a slavery of uncleanness and lawlessness. It is a slavery that leads to more sin and more sin and more sin. But when you present your members as slaves of sin, it will just lead to a pattern of habitual sin. And that's why Paul says, certainly not when asked, can we sin now that we're under grace? When a Christian sins, not only is he disobeying God, uh, but he is also presenting his members as slaves of uncleanness. So slavery to sin is a slavery to a cruel and a harsh taskmaster because sin promises much, but delivers nothing. Sin promises much, but delivers nothing. On the other hand, our slavery to righteousness is not on the same level as our former slavery to sin. Jesus, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, at the end of that chapter, he tells his weary disciples, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. These are the people who are laboring and are just bent over because of the burden of the the rules and the regulations that the, the Pharisees have placed on them. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And what does he say? He says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. So there's a yoke there. So the yoke here says, you know, but when Jesus says, you're t- you know, take my yoke. In other words, don't come to me and then you'll be free, but take my yoke. And he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. So slavery to righteousness is a servitude to a kind and loving master, one who loves you, one who cares for you, one who wants the best for you. The yoke of Jesus is an easy yoke, and it's a light burden. As such, then, we should want to submit ourselves to Jesus, and that's what Paul urges us in verse 19. Present your members as slaves of righteousness that leads to holiness or greater sanctification. So strive to be obedient to God. Doing so leads to greater and more holiness in our lives.
and we'll stop here. Uh, Two weeks, December 6th, we'll finish looking at uh, verses 20 to 23 in Romans 6, and I'll finish off Romans 6.